0: What are your economic expectations? Do you expect to be able to hear the pastor when he's talking? What are your economic expectations for this country? President Biden revealed his economic expectations for the country in his most recent State of the Union address. He said, we're building an economy where no one is left behind. Jobs are coming back. Pride is coming back because of the choices we made in the last two years. This is a blue-collar blueprint to rebuild America and make a real difference in your lives. My, Joe Biden's, economic plan is about investing in places and people that have been forgotten. Amid the economic upheaval of the past four decades, too many people have been left behind or treated like they're invisible. President Biden expects the economy to grow. And he expects it to happen by investing in places and people who have been forgotten. What are your economic expectations for the country? What are your economic expectations for your household? Do you have a budget, an investment plan, a five-year plan for your career, your income, and your spending? If you have kids, I'm sure you have certain economic expectations when you give them some money for Christmas shopping. You expect them to use that money to buy presents for others in the family. So what happens when they come back with $20 of candy for themselves? They didn't quite meet your economic expectations. If you're a member here at Millwood, what are your economic expectations for our church? What do you, uh, what, what, what's your opinion, what forms your opinion about what our budget should be and how we ought to spend our money? What are your economic expectations for yourself? What informs how you think about your own money? What controls how you spend it? Who can tell you how to use it? What are God's economic expectations for His people? What does God expect His people to do with, as we've talked about already this morning, what's really His money? This morning, we'll look at God's economic expectations for His people. We'll look at Acts 2.45 and see that Israel failed to meet God's economic expectations, but Christ fulfills them. I think Luke, who's the human author of Acts, I think his whole point in this section of Acts that we're, as Steve said, going through very slowly, one verse at a time, his whole point is to show that where Israel failed, Christ failed has succeeded and is currently succeeding in and through His people, the church. This section of Acts shows what happened immediately following the events of Pentecost. The risen Jesus in Acts one has ascended to the Father's right hand and He's sent the Spirit. The Son has ascended, the Spirit has descended on the church. Peter's preached the first Christian sermon explaining with heavenly authority what all this means, what's going on? This, what you're seeing, what you're hearing, he says, is the fulfillment of God's promises. This is the outpouring of the Spirit that all the prophets talked about. The Messiah has come. He's earned eternal life for himself and his people through his life, death, and resurrection. And now he sits at the Father's right hand, ruling and reigning over all things. So repent, Peter says. Repent, believe, and be baptized, and you too will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Look at 2.38. Look down at 2.38. Do you see that? He promises that they too will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And about 3,000 people do that very thing. They believe God's Word and receive God's Holy Spirit. The first church, the first assembly, believes the Word of Christ and receives the Spirit of Christ. And what effect does the Spirit have on them? What happens to a people when the Holy Spirit comes and enters into them, both individually into them and collectively? What happens when God makes His home in a people? Well, Luke's next paragraph, the paragraph we're walking through slowly, uh, is describing what happens what effect the Spirit has. And I think Luke chooses very carefully which aspects of the church to highlight. Luke's not trying to say everything in this one paragraph about what was going on in the early church. He's not trying to give us a whole church theology in this one paragraph. We have the rest of the New Testament for that. I think an argument can be made that what Luke chooses to highlight in these verses are specific fulfillments of God's expectations for His people. Specific fulfillments of biblical ideals for God's people, ideals God's always desired from His people, but weren't realized until now, this point in human history, until Christ came and fulfilled all things. Luke's emphasizing in this paragraph that everything that was wrong with the Old Covenant... Everything that was wrong with the people of Israel, everything that was wrong with people has been righted in Christ. God has, in Christ, righted what's wrong with Israel. As you read through the Old Testament, you just keep seeing Israel fail and fail and fail again. You have expectations for them. We read Deuteronomy 6. We read of God's kindness to them. They go, oh, surely they're going to respond in a good way. They'll be faithful this time. And they fail again and again. And Luke's saying all of the expectations that we have as Bible readers, that we have for Israel, that keep getting failed, all the hopes you have for that people of God, everything that went wrong is being set right. This, Luke's saying, is the church, the people of God. This is true Israel. This is who God always intended His people to be. This, the church, the body of Christ, is who God chose, calls, and equips to display His glory to all. That's what Luke's saying here. And so, let's take a few minutes to look at these various, uh, these couple verses, these various expectations that God had for His people that are being fulfilled. So, look first at verse 42. Look down at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Nathan preached on this a few weeks ago. Israel was called to this very kind of religious fellowship. Look at the two great commandments, for instance. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, all your strength, Deuteronomy says, everything you have. Hear, O Israel, listen to my word. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Teach this, teach me to your children. Devote yourselves, your lives to it. Meditate on it, know it, conform yourselves to it. But what does Israel do? What do they do with that command? They ignore it totally. Jeremiah actually says it's for this very reason they're ignoring it, that the Old Covenant people are punished. For a lack of knowledge my people perish, Jeremiah says. If you read through the history books of the Old Testament, as you're reading through, you might assume that God's people in the Old Testament are doing what we do and just gathering every Sunday, listening to the Word, being preached, being taught. But when you get to the end of Second Chronicles, this tragic and it's almost comedic, this thing happens. King Josiah sends someone to repair the house of God, and while he's there, while this man's cleaning up, he finds the law of God. He brings it and reads it to the king, and the king hears it apparently for the first time in his his life, but if you know Deuteronomy, you know he should have been doing that every day, reading the law. So, he hears it for the first time, and he rightly, he tears his clothes. He's distraught. He sees how neglectful and sinful he and the nation have been, Have you ever had your parents or your spouse leave the house for the day and give you a a to-do list at the beginning of the day? You say, okay, I got it. Yeah, 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 just set it down over there. I'll get to it. You think, I have the whole day to get this done, I have plenty of time. So you sit down, you watch a movie. uh, You go hang out with friends. You come back and you're thirsty. You go over to get a drink and there on the kitchen counter is that to-do list. You go, oh, I forgot. But by that point, it's too late to get everything done. That's what Israel has done. They've neglected the Word. They neglected the teaching of the prophets, and when they found it again, it was too late. Judgment was coming upon them. But the new covenant community, the covenant community in Christ, devotes themselves to the apostles' teaching. What's wrong with the old, the old covenant, the old covenant people, is set right in the new. Look at the next verse, verse 43. Or fear came upon every soul as the apostles were doing signs and wonders. Israel had great signs and wonders put right before them. They're rescued out of Egypt through plagues, through the miraculous parting of the Red Sea, through uh, they're, they're standing at the base of a mountain with smoke and lightning f- f- covering it. They can't see, and what do they do? Do they have this holy fear and awful reverence of this mighty God? No, they ignore this commandment and immediately build an idol. But God's new covenant people have a genuine holy fear, a fear that keeps them from straying into that same idolatry, from falling back into sin, from devoting themselves to anyone and anything other than the one who's loved them with an infinite love and grace. What's wrong in the old is set right in the new. Look at verse 44. The church, the gathering of believers, had all things in common. They were united. Israel, as soon as they get into the promised land, have a civil war at the end of Judges. As soon as King Solomon dies, the nation divides and two nations become, are created. But in the new covenant, in the church, the prayers of the, by the prayer of Jesus himself, the people are united and have all things in common. Skipping over our verse for this morning for a second, 46 and 47, verses 46 and 47, show a people worshiping and fellowshipping with glad and generous hearts. Israel, wandering in the wilderness, is punished to wander because of their complaint against God. God richly provides for them. He's just delivered them out of slavery. And they complain and grumble. They don't have generous hearts. What was wrong in the old has been set right in the new. Luke's showing that all that was wrong is being righted in Christ. And one of the ways he chooses in these few verses to show this is what they do with their possessions. In the middle of this list full of expectations for God's people, it says, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. One effect of God's work in the church is that the people begin to care for one another in financially sacrificial ways. What we're seeing here is that one effect of God's work in the church is that the people begin to care for one another in financially sacrificial ways ways." Notice two things before we go any further. First, notice the verb tense. Notice that it says, they were selling. It doesn't say they sold everything. This wasn't a one-time event. It was a continuous, ongoing thing where uh, they, would, they would continually sell their things as needs arose. It wasn't a one-time liquidation of all their assets. They pool everything together and live communally. Second, notice that they gave to all. And then Luke clarifies who that all was, as any had need. So anyone needy in the church would benefit from the generosity of others. So this verse is describing a general pattern of what happened in the early church. We actually get a more specific example of what this looked like in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, a good and a bad example, just like we get in chapter 3, an example of what an, a miraculous sign was that the apostles uh, work. So, we have this list, this, this tight summary in our paragraph we're looking at right now, and Then we get examples later in the book. Uh, so, Lord willing, when we get to that, We'll look at some more examples, and we'll uh, go into a little bit more detail about what God's calling us as a church to do, but for now, I think it's important to note that this was a regular, generous practice, not a mandated communal living situation. This is a regular, willful, generous practice, not mandated communal living. The early church was fulfilling God's economic expectations through this sacrificial giving, by caring for one another financially. So for the rest of our time this morning, let's look at God's economic expectations for His people, and then we'll look at what it is about Christ that fulfills those economic expectations. Let's look at God's expectations for His people, then we'll see how Christ fulfills those expectations. So bear with me for a few minutes as we start in the garden and go through to Christ, with God's economic expectations. Starting in the garden, God provided physically and spiritually for His people in every way. Adam and Eve were created in perfect natural fellowship with God. They are given the land to work and keep, to enjoy, to consume, to share with glad and thankful hearts. Look at Genesis 1, 27 and following. So God created man in His own image, in the image of God He created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over every fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Mankind had everything. Conflict want or desire, oppression, were unthinkable. But when man rebels, everything is cursed. God curses even the land, and what once freely gave to God's people now has to be forced and coaxed out by the sweat of their brow to produce. What fellowship we had with God is lost, and what peace we had between one another is likewise lost and becomes war. The first two men born in the world, Cain and Abel, can't live in harmony, not because there's not enough to go around, but because sinful, ungrateful hearts abound. Cain full of jealousy kills Abel. God gave mankind everything and expected fruitfulness, but mankind responds by killing the fruit of his own mother's womb. God expects faithfulness and fruitfulness and fellowship. Man rebels, kills, and brings disunity. Things get no better as we continue through the Old Testament and see the story of Israel. By the time we get to Israel, famine and slavery kind of have been their defining marks. This oppressed nation in Egypt under Pharaoh's boot in slavery, is graciously rescued, though, by God. God brings them out from Egypt, gives them their own land, a land flowing with milk and honey. He's graciously giving this land flowing with milk and honey, a symbol of provision and plenty. If the nation goes into the land, is obedient to God, obedient to the law He gives them, God promises to bless them And their land. He says in Deuteronomy 28 He'll bless the very land itself. It'll produce fruit. He'll bless their livestock. They will grow. He'll even bless their families. Their families will grow. God promises economic abundance. And God expects the people to use this blessing for the benefit of others. He commands them not to steal, not to oppress their neighbors, not to rob them, not to withhold wages due to workers. And he even gives them a welfare system. Leviticus 19 says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. God's attaching his own name, his personal covenant name, his own glory, his reputation to this command. Don't be miserly. Don't be tight-fisted. Be generous. Care about those lower on the economic ladder than you. And even intentionally provide for them. Have I not rescued you, God says, you poor slaves and sojourners? Have I not blessed you with things you haven't deserved? Now treat others the same way I've treated you. Treat them with mercy and grace. God's expectation for His people his covenant people Israel, is to obey and be generous. As a result, he says in Deuteronomy 15, there will be no poor among you. You obey, there will be no poor among you. I will care for you. This is his expectation. How does Israel respond? Well, how do you think after this morning's been going? In addition to their rampant idolatry, they cannot stop oppressing one another. The rich, the religious and political leaders can't stop crushing the poor. Isaiah says, Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there's no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. One of Isaiah's seven woes he has for the nation of Israel are for those who are covetous, who take more than they could ever use, more than they could ever need at the expense of others. They don't just gain, they take. Jeremiah has even more harsh words for the king. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages, who says, I will build myself a great house with spacious upper rooms, who cuts out windows for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion, do you think you are a king because you complete in cedar? Do not. Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well. Is not this to know me, declares the Lord? But you have eyes and heart only for your dishonest gain, for shedding innocent blood and for practicing oppression and violence. Isaiah condemns the people, Jeremiah condemns the king, and Ezekiel condemns the religious leaders. In Ezekiel 34, he says, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak, you have not strengthened. The sick, you have not healed. The injured, you have not bound up. The strayed, you have not brought back. The lost, you have not sought. And with force and harshness, you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. They became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They they wandered all over the mountains on every high hill my sheep were scattered over the face of the earth with none to search and seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. The very leaders God assigned to care for His people are profiting off of them at their expense. Economic oppression by the rich The political and the religious leaders lead to the nation's judgment. God kills them and sends them into exile. Israel had every outward blessing, a perfect righteous law code, a land of their own, promised provision for every earthly need, but none of that is enough for the human heart. None of that is enough for the sinful human heart. This is how man always responds to God's provision. In the garden, in Israel, and in America, the land of plenty. Why will no economic system ever produce a utopia? Why will no politician, no political party ever result in what we all to some level desire? Because as long as sin remains, As long as there are unregenerate people in society, and especially in positions of power, people will always use that power to oppress others and themselves gain and profit. Though that's true, I'm I'm not saying that we should abandon all political involvement. We need to, as citizens, be involved in political discussions. But we as Christians must be aware of the sinfulness of human hearts as we think through these matters. And we have to ask ourselves, are we putting too much hope in an economic policy that we think will result in uninhibited prosperity? So long as we sinners live in a nation full of sinners, can we really hope for better results than Israel who enjoyed blessing and promise from God? Even we don't. God's expectation for His people in the Garden and in Israel were fruitfulness, blessing, peace, and unity. The results were murder, oppression, and division. In the New Testament, Jesus reiterates many of God's old covenant expectations regarding money. Let's turn to Luke 12. Turn with me to Luke 12. Here, Jesus, starting in verse 13, um, a man comes up and asks Him a question, and Jesus responds. Someone in the crowd said to Him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But He, that is Jesus, said to Him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And He said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus takes this opportunity to teach the crowd how foolish it is to store up money for yourself, actually warns them that that very act could be a sign of covetousness that can lead to eternal ruin. That very act can be the, what distracts us from eternal, heavenly things. He then goes on in the chapter in verses 22 to 30 to remind the crowd of God's rich and gracious provision for His people, for all people. And then he concludes by saying in verse 33, Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This is very similar to what we saw God expect of His people Israel, isn't it? Provide for the poor. Prioritize faithfulness to God. He'll provide for you in this life and, more importantly, in the next. Israel fails miserably. The Old Covenant people do not listen. What does the church do? Turn back to Acts 2. Turn back to Acts 2. Go to our one verse this morning. What does the church do? How did they respond? And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Luke's showing us that God's economic expectations are fulfilled in the church in the body of Christ. What's the difference? What's changed from Adam to Israel, now to Acts? Are Peter and the apostles and the rest of the crowd different by nature from those greedy oppressors in Israel? Are you and I sitting here this morning just naturally more generous than a lot, than most people? No, in in this fallen world, you and I are naturally greedy. You and I come into this world covetous. Deep down, we're dissatisfied with the good gifts God's given us. When we read the stories of Israel complaining in the wilderness, when we see them steal and oppress, we shouldn't think that there's something foreign or strange. How could they do that? We should see people, when we see Israel, who are very much like us. So what's the difference then? If we're just like them, what's the difference? What's changed from Adam to Israel to Acts? Christ. Jesus is the difference. Christ himself fulfills God's expectations to care for the poor and needy. Christ forgives our greed, our covetousness, and our misuse of money, paying for our sin on the cross. And Christ gives us his spirit who sprinkles clean our hearts from our selfishness, reorients our desires both outward to others and upward to God. Jesus comes into the world as a poor man having no place to lay his head, he says. Jesus, who is and always has been the King, Lord of all, Jesus comes into the world and takes poverty on himself, experiencing affliction, scorn, and hardship, enduring humility, suffering faithfully, even with joy. And as both king and pauper, he perfectly reveals God's heart for the poor and needy. He fed the poor miraculously, multiplying loaves and fish. He pitied the sick and the lame, those who couldn't work and provide for themselves. He healed everyone who touched His garment. Thousands would crowd and press around Him. He befriended and served the despised lower class, and even dined and discipled the despised upper class, tax collectors. He pronounced woes on those who were oppressing, hypocritical Pharisees. Jesus, during His earthly ministry, Embodied the mercy God expects his people to have for the poor and needy. His life was wholly given to and for others. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. Jesus also takes the curse of the law upon himself. He takes the curse that was due to us. We broke the law, we deserved the curse. Jesus takes upon himself this curse for those like you and me who are poor and needy in some ways, at the same time, greedy and selfish and oppressive. Christ dies for the spiritually impoverished. Wherever you are on the economic ladder this morning, rich, poor, have, have not, lower, middle, upper class, whether you feel that you are oppressed by others, whether you actually are oppressed by others, whether you've exploited others, whether you've earned every penny you have the right way, we've all racked up a sin debt against God. By nature, we have no righteousness of our own stored up in our accounts. We are bad. We crave what others have We may not want field after field or house upon house, but we do think we just need a little bit more. Then we'll be satisfied. What material thing are you craving right now? What investment takes up just too much of your thought life? Being consumed with cars or iPhones, stocks, whatever it is that grips you, reveals that your nature is not all that different from the oppressive Israelites, who themselves just wanted just one more field, then I'll be happy. But Christ went to the cross to forgive greedy sinners who aren't satisfied with what God's given us, and who by our greed actually show ourselves to be spiritually needy. What happened on the cross? Christ's atoning death and resurrection is often talked about in economic terms. Christ dies as a ransom for many. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, Ephesians 1.7. In Him, God canceled the record of debt that stood against us, Colossians 2. We've been bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 6.20. We've been bought by the precious blood of Christ, 1 Peter 1.19. Christ pays the penalty we deserved on the cross, so repent. Turn from your covetousness, your greed, your envy, every sin that's morally bankrupted you. Repent and trust in Christ. Come to Him by faith. He'll not only forgive your debt, He'll also credit you with His very own righteousness. All the merit he earned is yours. Poor sinner, you can stand before the Father today with all the riches that Christ has earned, credited to you. Come to him and find true prosperity. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. If you have questions about that, maybe you just want to talk a little bit more about what that means for you. Find one of the elders or any member of this church who are sitting around you this morning. We'd love nothing more than to spend the rest of the afternoon talking about the gospel. Well, what happens when God gathers the redeemed, the ransomed, those who have been bought at a price? What happens when God gathers those people together? Specifically, we're looking this morning, what do they do with their money, their property, their possessions? They begin to care for one another in financially sacrificial ways. As I already said, Lord willing, when we look at Acts 4 and 5, we'll look at more specific principles regarding money, giving, and maybe even talk about our church budget, why we spend our money the way that we do as a church. We'll hopefully answer questions about where our money should go, principles about working and caring for people inside versus outside the church, spending on missions, while there's homeless in our city, and we'll talk about other things. But this morning, instead, we're just looking at Luke's very general description of the church's generosity. So, let's look at three gospel realities that causes this kind of sacrificial generosity in the church, both in Jerusalem and here at Millwood. Three gospel realities. First, as Peter's already preached, Christ is Lord. Lord the last quotes Peter uses in his sermon is from Psalm 110, saying that Jesus is Lord. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and He rules specifically over the church. He's purchased her. So if you're a Christian here this morning, Jesus owns you. That's why Paul starts most of his letters introducing himself as Paul, slave of Christ. He doesn't see himself or anything he has, as his own. But he sees all, first and foremost, as belonging to Christ. Christ in the gospel has earned this lordship. We've been brought under his lordship by grace and have been given everything that we have by grace. We have all that we have temporarily, on loan, and one day we'll have to answer for how we use it. The Lord Jesus gave His people a command that we read earlier this morning. He says, because everything is a temporary gift from God, sell your possessions and give to the poor. As Lord, we should, like the early church, be quick to obey Him. He is our Lord. Our natural instinct ought to be obey Jesus. Our gut instinct, when we hear of a need, that means, specifically in this church, our gut instinct when we hear of a need should be to figure out how to meet that need, no matter the cost. Is Christ the Lord of your bank account? Do you trust Him as a generous Lord of your bank account, of your life, who isn't stingy but blesses us, Ephesians 1 says, in Christ with every spiritual blessing? Do you trust that He'll care for you and your family if you obey this command to give to the poor? Do you primarily think about your money as a tool to meet your need, food, shelter, retirement, entertainment? Or do you primarily think of it as a tool to reflect God's will and generosity to the world? Let this passage convict you about the way you've used your money. I know it's convicted me meditating on it this week. My gut reaction, like I'm sure many of yours, is to say, well, the Bible still affirms private property. Paul says later that if someone doesn't work, he shouldn't eat, so that means I don't really have to do this. Those things are true, but before we dismiss what sacrifice we're being called to in this verse, by running to those verses, sit here for a while. Think about it this afternoon, talk about it with your spouse, your kids, or another member of the church. Think through the sentence in our church covenant to which we've bound ourselves that says we will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry of the church, its expenses, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel to all nations. The gospel teaches that Christ is Lord. The gospel also frees us from our greed. The gospel teaches us that Christ is Lord. The gospel also frees us from our need. Our greed, rather, and our need. The gospel of Jesus Christ frees us. Whoever commits sin is a slave to sin, Jesus says in John 8. But this, who the Son sets free is free indeed. The gospel frees us from our greed as John said earlier this morning, by satisfying our desires. The gospel gives us new and heavenly desires and meets them all in Christ. In the gospel, we're awakened to the reality that this world, this life, isn't all there is. We're freed from being consumed constantly by the minutiae of this life, from the anxiety of day-to-day struggles, because even these light momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal eternal weight of glory. A few years even of financial hardship is nothing compared to endless eons of being perfectly and fully satisfied in Christ. In Him we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even now seated together with Him there. The poor Christian has received more riches in Christ than all the world has to offer. Didn't we sing that this morning? Doesn't John teach that at the beginning of his gospel? From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. What the imperishable inheritance we look forward to free you from clutching too tightly to anything in this world. The gospel teaches us that Christ is Lord The gospel frees us from our greed, and finally, the gospel enables this kind of generosity we see in Acts by making us like Christ. The gospel makes us like Christ. Romans 8 says that God predestined Christians to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. We're saved with a purpose to look like Christ, and Christian God's fulfilling that purpose in you as we speak. We were made and we were remade to be like Christ, who came not to be served but to serve, who gave His very life as a ransom for many. We who are being made like Him, who are called to be like Him, can reflect that in a small way by giving from our own livelihood. We're being made to care more for others, than our own interests. We, like Christ, are to consider others more significant than ourselves. And so that means, if you find yourself in need, if you find yourself struggling financially, you can come to the church and not find condemnation or judgment or a lecture about being better with your money. You can find people who want to help you, who think that your needs are more important than their own while we're here in this life, we have many needs, real needs, and we, Millwood, want to help you. So don't hesitate to talk to someone in the church about your physical needs. I personally have found that to be true of us here as a church. Millwood, my family is so grateful for your generosity. When we showed up to Austin, we showed up to a kitchen full of bags of food and kitchen su- supplies. When Thea was born, we couldn't stop people from bringing us meals. I could go on about all the generosity I've seen, even literally this last week. I've seen Greg Alman give me a book this morning, "Out of the Blue." I've seen Aaron be more generous than I've ever been in my life. I've seen Andy sponsor someone to go to camp. Through your giving, not only to the church as a whole, but to members individually, through this giving, God is glorified. Several of our friends and neighbors asked about how hard it must be for us having a daughter so far away from grandparents. Do you know how surprised they were When we tell them that it's actually been fine. (laughs) We have a church. They're caring for every need we have. That doesn't make sense to the world. So keep giving to one another in ways that don't make sense to the world. Keep glorifying God. Keep showing God's grace in our life together as a church, a grace that makes us look like Christ, a grace that frees us from our greed, and a grace that will bring us in the end to Christ, our Lord, and our treasure. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for Your instruction. Thank You for Your Word, for Your law that teaches us what it is to be generous, to reflect You, but Lord, thank You for Christ who perfectly reflects You, who forgives our greed, who gives us a righteousness, eternal riches that we do not deserve. Lord, help us now to think, to consider what that means for our lives, what that means for how we will use what money You've given us, for how we'll care for one another. Continue to shape us as a body into the image of Your Son, for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.